Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence St. Joseph Health medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Andrew Gomez, a board-certified sports medicine physician at Providence Medical Group Mill Creek Sports Medicine. Today, we're answering your questions about common sports injuries and how to prevent and treat them. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from our listeners on social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag TalkWithTheDoc, that's hashtag TalkWithTheDoc, for your chance to hear your questions on an episode. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during the show is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Okay, let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Gomez. Thanks for joining us. Sure, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your role and how you got into this work. So that's, uh, I could get into the weeds a little bit, but in terms of what attracted me to sports medicine, I always have been a big proponent for prevention. Um, I've always been someone who uses exercise and fitness as an outlet. So sports medicine um, has always been a natural fit. I always knew that I wanted to get into a field of medicine that really emphasizes prevention. Um, If you look at the epidemiological data, most Americans will Um, suffer some degree of cardiovascular disease, a large fraction of us will, and exercise is a really great way to um, reduce um, cardiovascular comorbidity um, and mortality. So to me, it was a natural fit, and I love working with athletes. I I love working with young people, getting them um, active and fit, working with the high school football team. So it was a, a really natural fit for me. So for those who don't know what comorbidity is. It's basically an associated, um, it's like if someone has diabetes, um, high blood pressure, um, hyperlipidemia, or high cholesterol, those things can contribute to cardiovascular disease. They're risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And exercise is known to improve some of the metrics associated with those comorbidities or those um, disease processes that are associated with cardiovascular disease. Makes sense. So then the big question of the day is, what's your sports team? So I am a, a fan of some of the local uh, Seattle teams. So I I enjoy watching um, the Mariners occasionally, the Seahawks, the Sounders. But I have to say that I actually appreciate NCAA football more than anything else. Yeah. So, um, you know, go Huskies. I also am an <laughs> alumni or an alumnus of uh, University of Arizona, so go Wildcats as well. Bear down. Bear down. Me too. Yeah, I didn't awesome. know that. Yeah, cool. Look at that. We're learning new things <laughs> all the time. We could go on all day about that. Yes. That's fascinating. Well, so you talked a lot about different sports, baseball, football. Wh- which ones tend to produce the most injuries for people? Well, you know, it's a matter of which injuries um, are associated with which sport. So if you look at um, soccer, uh, women's soccer, you're thinking about knees, ACLs in particular. Um, When you're talking about baseball, you're thinking about the shoulder because you're throwing, um, particularly with pitchers. There's a lot of shoulder um, pathology in in throwers. Um, When you're thinking about, uh, let's think of another sport, swimmers, Um, shoulder pathology Mm -hmm. is pretty common in swimmers. So it really kind of depends upon the sport um, and people break it down in the literature further by contact versus non-contact injuries, overuse versus acute injury. So it really kind of depends on the sport. 
What do you see in kind of like what we call weekend warriors, right? People who are maybe doing CrossFit or runners is, is, are you seeing a lot more common things like knee tears? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there's the weekend warrior, there's the weekend warrior gardener, there's the weekend warrior (laughs) CrossFitter. I see it all. And there's also another group of folks that I see the industrial athlete, which has been, um, talked about in the medical literature as well. These are the people who do construction and do a lot of laborious things during the week. And they are definitely prone to injury as well. Now, in terms of what I'm seeing a lot currently, again, the, the Providence Mill Creek sports medicine practice has been up and running for about four to five months. So we're still kind of getting to a steady state, but I'm seeing a lot of shoulders, um, a lot of knees, ankles, um, and elbows. And I see a lot of other stuff too, but those are really the primary joints that I see a lot of at this point. Are you seeing a lot of certain things amongst teenagers or like high school athletes? Yeah, so I'm I'm one of the team physicians for Archbishop Murphy High School, and I work with IRG and the athletic trainer there. Um, a lot of knees, um, knees and shoulders, I would have to say. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Exactly. <laughs> and heads, yes, actually concussions. I see concussions as well. He's looking at me right now because we were talking about this off air, but I've had a few uh, concussions in my lifetime, so I'm very fascinated by that. What do you tell uh, parents then if their kids have had a concussion playing sports? Concussions are so common, so it's par for the course for an athlete who is really engaged with their sport to have a concussion. Now, repeat concussions, that's really when you have a problem or a concussion that keeps an athlete out for more than a month. That can be a little bit problematic. So... I talk a lot with um, parents about trying to avoid more than three concussions in a year. I think a lot of sports organizations, Mm -hmm. that's kind of really where you start thinking about withdrawing the athlete and really thinking about, um, you know, uh, preventive uh, mechanisms to to avoid further head injury. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what those are? So one of the things that's been implemented in football, for example, which obviously is a contact sport and is athletes playing football are definitely prone to um, head injuries. There are certain tackling techniques, training techniques that the coaches and the staff can implement to reduce the um, risk of head injury, that kind of stuff. So if you have an athlete who, for example, tackles, has a tendency to tackle with their head down, you can counsel that athlete. There are safer ways to tackle. Here's how you do it. Spend additional time with them to really teach them methods and, and techniques to avoid um, further concussion. Do you see, um, I've seen an increase in the number of people that are doing like MMA and UFC and that's, mm-hmm. are you seeing a lot more injuries in that space? So what I have to say about that is, I mean, I'm fascinated by the pathologies associated with those types of sports because those are some very robust athletes, definitely some of the toughest athletes, I would guess. In Mill Creek, in the area that we're building up to sports medicine practice, I haven't seen um, a lot of high-level MMA or um, athletes who are doing that kind of stuff. I'll have the occasional martial artist or the occasional judo person who mm-hmm. does it recreationally. But outside of that, I'm not seeing any MMA high level athletes at this point. Maybe soon though. Who Maybe knows? soon, right? Yeah. I, I know that a lot of kids are starting to get into it. Well, what about CrossFit? Because we are seeing a lot of people doing more CrossFit and talking about CrossFit. And I know there's a big debate as to whether it's really too much for your body or not enough. Or That's a really good um, um, question because it, it is something that is known in the public consciousness um, CrossFit being a very intense, robust workout. 
and CrossFitters are very passionate about what they do. And I think CrossFit, the high intensity interval training that they do is great. It's, it's great for the connective tissue, the muscles, the cardiovascular system. So I think that's all terrific. I think one of the things that from my perspective, my um, opinion on the matter at this point in my training is it comes down to training load. Now, if you have an athlete who shows up to a CrossFit class and they're trying to keep up with these other more seasoned CrossFitters, you know, going for maximum reps within a certain period of time, that's a recipe for injury. And everyone's heard about rhabdo. Um, you know, even I think CrossFitters have a term, Uncle Rhabdo. I've heard some mm-hmm. CrossFitters. I have friends that are CrossFitters, and they call it Uncle Rhabdo because it's something that occurs so frequently. And that's basically when the muscle tissue is stressed to an extent where it breaks down and there's myoglobin released into the blood and it can affect the kidneys. It's not. It's a big deal. It's something that you want to try to avoid. Now, it really comes down to training load. If you have a seasoned CrossFitter and they're used to doing it and they've worked up to a, a steady state into an equilibrium and they're doing these high rep sets within a certain period of time, their body's trained for that. But it's really building up to that, I think, that is the potential risk. So if you have an athlete who's going from zero to 60 in two seconds, that's definitely a recipe for injury. Well, that kind of begs the question in general, too. What do you tell people about warming up right before before doing whatever sport or activity they're doing? So the most common um, thing I see is people doing static stretching before they start exercise. So this is kind of where you get your body into a certain position and you hold it for 15, 30 seconds. Um, now, there's some evidence that dynamic stretching prior to exercise, prior to athletic participation is better than static stretching. Um, there's fancier types of stretching, PNF stretching. Um, what does PNF stretching mean? It's proprioceptive neuromuscular <laughs> facilitation stretching. It's fancy. Yeah, okay. What does that mean? <laughs> it's basically stretching the tissue, the stretching the muscle while activating it. And it's a very specific technique. And the medical evidence behind it is is pretty robust. But it's as good as dynamic stretching, mm-hmm. which is basically warming up the joints, moving the joints, the bigger joints um, initially, probably the better. So moving the hips, moving the shoulders um, prior to participating in exercise or whatever sport the athlete might be participating in. And that has been shown to be better than static stretching. Now, the analogy that I'll use with um, patients and athletes is if you get a rubber band and it's a cold rubber band and you stretch it, it's more likely to snap than if you kind of warm it up by stretching Mm -hmm. it a little bit prior to really putting a lot of tension on the rubber band. It's less likely to snap if you kind of warm it up first. So that's really the same principle. That's a great analogy. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like it. I like it. Well, I'm glad we were talking about stretching because I have a question. I I actually met with one of our Providence doctors in Spokane who was an orthopedist who did sports medicine, and he convinced me I was not too big or too old to start running, and so I did. Um, But I can't decide if warming up, like stretching ahead of the run or stretching at the end of the run is better, and do I really have to do both? I would say I would do both. Oh, man. I would do dynamic stretching first, Okay. and I would go for your run. And then after the run, I would do some static stretching. That's what I would do. Okay. Yeah. See, it just adds more time. Now i got to figure out when to do it. It does. But okay. Yeah. But I haven't had any injuries yet, so I'm going to knock on the wood. Okay, <laughs> perfect. So when it comes to sports injuries, what types are easier to recover from and which ones take the longer? So I think when people think about orthopedics, 
musculoskeletal medicine, one of the first things that comes to mind is bony injuries. Now, if you fracture a bone, that's going to take a longer time to heal because the bone provides support to the other connective tissue, to the muscles, to the ligaments, to the tendons. So a bony injury is definitely going to take longer than if you have a mild strain of the rotator cuff or a mild strain of um, the LCL, for example. Mm -hmm. So bony injuries definitely will take a little bit longer. Um, there's, it's a difficult question too, because if you consider acute versus chronic injury, that kind of muddies the mix a little sure. bit because some chronic injuries are injuries that patients have to manage for the foreseeable future. The pain will wax and wane. The function that is limited by the injury can wax and wane. So, um, usually bony injuries probably arguably longer. If you have a surgical pathology that's operated on, I mean, you're going to have to do rehabilitation, physical therapy. So that can take a while too. So you did talk a little bit about stretching, but what are other ways that we can prevent injuries? Injury prevention, it's uh, getting adequate nutrition, adequate rest, um, making sure that you're really focusing on um, your general well-being, avoiding overtraining, doing the stretching like we talked about. Um, I think any athlete would be served by implementing some degree of stretching, strength training, um, and really some degree of cross-training too. One of the questions I saw on this list was a question about um, athletes who train for the same sport year-round, and some degree of cross-training can be healthy for particularly young athletes, mm -hmm. athletes of, of any level, you know, frankly. And is that just because you're working different parts of your body and you're not straining the same one all the time? Exactly, exactly. Okay. I mean, if you're a thrower, for example, going back to the baseball players, if you have a pitcher who's uh, playing baseball year-round and throwing a ton of pitches um, for eight, nine months of the year, the shoulder, definitely the shoulder tissue in particular is at risk for injury, particularly the rotator cuff, the labrum, some of these other uh, tissue structures. Now, if that baseball player were to play soccer recreationally for a couple of months out of the year, then not only is he going to um, decrease the loads and the stresses on the shoulder, but he's also going to um, work on some of the other muscle tissue that he's not really used to working. Um, so cross-training is definitely something that I encourage athletes to, to do. Talk to me a little bit about taping, because I keep seeing all these fancy kinds of tapes. There's the monkey tape and this tape and that tape and cross it. Do we need them or not? So taping can be effective for injury prevention. For example, if you have an athlete who has sprained their ankle, they are at risk for further subsequent ankle sprains. So ankle taping or a lace-up ankle brace can reduce subsequent ankle sprains. Now, the different types of taping, there's different manufacturers. I don't recommend any particular manufacturer over another, but if you have someone who's experienced with taping, particularly the athletic trainers, they're very good at taping, they can help prevent further injury. Um, there's also some research that's looking at the proprioception changes that occur when you put the tape on the skin, and it seems like there may be something there, but the evidence is still kind of um, maturing and developing. When you talk about athletic trainers, I worked for an NBA team and an NFL team, and those guys could tape up like an entire team in five minutes. You just go down the row, and it was like it was like their hands were made of fire. It was crazy. It's incredible. I've seen some incredible athletic trainers do some incredible taping jobs. Well, if you do have um, an injury, how how much rest do you need in between injuries? And I know that's kind of a vague question, so maybe pick an injury if you want to. So how much rest do you need? 
everybody's body heals differently. And that's one of the things about sports medicine that can be a little bit tricky. It's hard to put a patient or an athlete into a protocolized um, clinical pathway because some people are very robust healers and some people have a different substrate and it's just really hard to get the tissue to heal. Some people are very motivated to participate in rehab and home exercises, whereas other patients or athletes are just a little bit more lackadaisical about it. Or scared maybe, right? Or scared yeah. and have fear of, of further injuring the tissue, definitely. So it's really hard to say. It really comes down to the, the athlete. One of the rules of thumb is if the symptoms are improving on a day-by-day or a week-by-week basis, that's usually a good sign. So if the symptom trajectory is moving in the right direction, that's really what is key and important for managing an injury. Wonderful. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to pick up on this because I've noticed that a lot of like NBA players who tear their ACL are coming back mid-season, whereas like 10 years ago, they were out for the whole season. So we're going to pick back up on that and we will be right back. Look for the good in everything. Look for the people who will set your soul free. It always seems impossible until it's done. Look for the good in everyone. Impossible until it's done. 
talk with the doc and today we have dr andrew gomez from providence medical group and we're talking about common sports injuries and before we pick back up i just want to remind our listeners that the information provided during this segment is for educational purposes only and you should always consult your healthcare provider regarding a medical condition or treatment so we're coming back though from the break right before we left we were talking a little bit about injuries and how long it takes to heal and what i've noticed is and again i said i worked in sports so 10 years ago a player comes down, they tear the ACL, they're out for the season. Now they come down, they tear the ACL, they're back in four games. How have things improved? Why is that changing? So here's, I mean, just to quickly distinguish my role versus someone who may have a little bit more expertise in that. I'm not a surgeon. I have shadowed surgeons and I kind of can maybe cue the audience into this a little bit. But when I rotated with surgeons in fellowship, in sports medicine fellowship, they would routinely say that um, if an if an athlete ruptured their ACL, they would generally be out for the season. So I think the traditional wisdom outside of professional sports where you worked in the past is just be prepared to be out for the season. Now, I would say nowadays we have a lot of really cool techniques, a lot of orthobiologics, regenerative medicine, and I know that the uh, professional athletes have that available to them. So, you know, we're talking about stem cells, platelet-rich plasma, some of these other orthobiologic treatments. And I don't know what the operative techniques are that these athletes have available to them, but I'd imagine that they're doing some pretty fancy, cool things. Well, talk to me a little bit about how you diagnose um, an injury, a sports injury. And then once you've diagnosed it, how do you decide how to treat it? So typically, by the time I see a patient in my clinic, they've um, considered the routine treatments at home. They've gotten on Google at this point or the routine websites that people use to to think about how they manage a, uh, a knee injury or an ankle injury. 
they've already gone to their primary care provider and gotten a referral to see me. So they've tried the NSAIDs, so they've tried the ibuprofen, the naproxens, the Tylenols, um, maybe a compressive sleeve, maybe already gotten plugged in with physical therapy. So by the time I see an athlete, it's usually or a patient, it's usually something that is um, a little bit more concerning or something that um, is not your typical um, pathology. So when I see a, a, an athlete or a patient, I will do my own clinical exam, a very detailed clinical exam, and that's a pretty substantial portion of the visit. Obviously, I'll take my own history and kind of understand what happened. I use ultrasound in my practice quite a bit, so I use um, ultrasound to help diagnose injuries. And when we think about ultrasound, the traditional thing that people think about is in pregnancy, taking a look at the mm-hmm. child in utero to to make sure the child has um, you know two feet, two arms, whatever. But we use diagnostic ultrasound for musculoskeletal medicine to look at tendons, to look at muscles, to look at ligaments, to look at uh, peripheral joints. You can visualize a lot of things, a lot of soft tissue with ultrasound. So for example, if I see an athlete with shoulder pain, they have decreased range of motion, they've been having pain for two or three months, they've tried physical therapy, they're not getting their range of motion back, I can basically visualize all four rotator cuff tendons. Um, I can visualize whether or not the tendons are thickened, do they look tendinopathic, Um, is there full thickness tearing, partial thickness tearing, and really help direct the treatment. Now, the traditional gold standard of imaging for musculoskeletal medicine is often MRI, And diagnostic ultrasound is really uh, creeping up as one of the um, main modalities used in sports medicine for diagnosis and for interventional things for guiding needles um, when we're talking about treatment. And you also do work with platelets and plasma, all all the fun stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. So I um, I have to give credit to the the mentors that I trained with at Swedish at Cherry Hill, uh, Dr. Porcho, Dr. Henning, Dr. Erickson, Dr. Marquardt. Um, they've been I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of regenerative medicine, particularly Dr. Porcho and Dr. Henning. So we do do platelet rich plasma um, at at the Providence Mill Creek Sports Medicine location. Now it's basically drawing. 15, anywhere from 15 up to 60 or 120 cc's of blood, spinning it in a centrifuge at a very specific rate for a very particular amount of time, harvesting the plasma with a increased uh, platelet concentration, and then injecting that into the, the pathologic uh, tendon or the joint or the muscle, whatever it might be. And the, the outcomes seem to be pretty darn good. That's awesome. Well, how do you know if if that's a good option or you need surgery? What's the distinction? So that's a that's really the decision point that I'm often making in my clinical practice on a daily basis for most of the patients that I'm seeing. So most pathologies have a pretty clear cut. Um, there's a there's a way to determine it. For example, if we're talking about the rotator cuff, if I see, if I have a patient, they've had two to three weeks of severe shoulder pain, uh, decreased range of motion, I'll take a look with ultrasound. And if there's evidence of an acute rotator cuff rupture, so for example, if the supraspinatus tendon is ruptured and there's fluid around the tendon and it's very apparent, that's a mechanical problem that requires a mechanical fix. Well, I'll bounce that patient over to my surgical colleagues. They'll take a look and they'll make sure that, you know, th- they'll also confirm that this is a surgical pathology and maybe fix it up. 
in chronic degenerative tears of the supraspinatus. Sometimes you can manage it non-operatively, but that's that's really kind of the determination. Is it a mechanical problem that requires a mechanical fix, or is it something where it's a chronic overuse um, degenerative process that would benefit from something like PRP or a corticosteroid injection to get them through a course of physical therapy? Hmm. Okay. So for the most part, you focus on the non-surgical. Mm-hmm. And you, we talked a little bit about a couple of them. What are the other things that you focus on? So in terms of the tools I have in my toolkit, I work very closely with physical therapists, and I've been getting to know a lot of the physical therapists in the area. So developing robust treatment plans for patients that really are suitable for their lifestyle and their exercise goals or their athletic goals. Now, outside of that, it's really a large part of my practice is using the ultrasound to um, inject. Now, there's the diagnostic component, which we talked briefly about, but I, I use ultrasound to sneak needles into joints, into tendons, around tendons, into muscles. And there's a lot of really cool treatments that we can um, offer patients to help speed up their recovery and get them back to their sport. Um, for example, besides most everyone's familiar with corticosteroid injections for knee osteoarthritis or acute knee pain. This is cortisone shots, right? Yep, yep, exactly. Okay. But what people refer to as cortisone shots. Now, for example, if I see a patient with tendinopathy, which is a chronic overuse injury of a tendon. It could be the rotator cuff tendons. It could be the patellar tendon, the Achilles tendon. Um, One of the treatments we can offer is something called fenestration or tenotomy. Now, what that is, is creating a methodical injury inside of the chronically overused tendon under ultrasound guidance. It's basically nearly equivalent to dry needling. You basically poke the tendon 20 to 30 times, creating a very methodical injury. You can inject PRP inside of that, um, the injury or around the tendon. There's people do a lot of different uh, things and there's different ways to do it. But you basically fenestrate the tendon or tenotomize the tendon, put PRP inside of it. And the outcomes for that have been shown to be pretty darn good, particularly with patellar tendinopathy. Um, There's some blossoming evidence with regard to rotator cuff tendinopathy. There's pretty good evidence with regard to common extensor tendinopathy, which is also... Are you just making words up now? I feel like you're just making words up for me. (laughs) The the other doctors or other sports medicine doctors who are listening to this, um, I think that... I'm sorry I'm using so much terminology, but tendinopathy is basically overuse of these different tendons. So these are different regions. So the shoulder tendons, the knee tendons... Um, and common extensor tendinopathy is what people refer to as um, lateral epicondylitis. Or is that tennis elbow? Yep, exactly. Uh, okay. Tennis golfer's elbow. Can you look at mine before you leave? Because I Definitely. feel like I have that. Okay, yes, good. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think, wh- when people come in to talk to you, what are the most painful injuries? Not necessarily the most common, but the ones that people just say, I can't deal with this at home anymore. Oh, my goodness. So what's interesting about pain is that you can have, I think arthritis is a good example of this. So arthritis, which I see a lot of arthritis of the knees, for example, arthritis is graded from one to four. Now, four is bone on bone. One is very mild osteoarthritis. I can see a patient with a grade one osteoarthritis of the left knee and a grade four osteoarthritis of the right knee. And the left knee, the grade one, is the one that is a 10 out of 10 pain. And the right one is a 2 out of 10. So the radiographic findings, whether it's ultrasound, MRI, or radiographs, plain x-rays, don't often correlate with symptoms. And that's something that I'm often talking with patients about. So it's hard to say. Honestly, it's hard to say. 
How do patients get referred to you? Do they have to go to their primary care doctor first or? Typically, yes, they have to go visit with their primary care doctor. The primary care doctor will kind of initiate routine treatment options, maybe do a referral to physical therapy. It really comes down to insurance coverage. So some insurances don't require a referral, whereas a good fraction of them do. So they go through their primary care doc, get a referral, and then they end up on my template, on my schedule. What I think is interesting is that you are a sports medicine doc, but you talked about like the weekend warriors. You talked about construction workers. So you don't just see athletes. Definitely. I see people of all um, from all backgrounds, all stripes of life. So I see, like I said, the um, weekend warrior gardener who is working with their tulips and spent too much time on their knees and their osteoarthritis has flared up. I see um, someone who walked their dog and their dog pulled their hand too aggressively and now their elbow hurts. Um, I see the recreational basketball player who, you know, jumped for the rebound, landed and tore their meniscus. So I see people um, (laughs) of all ages, of all athletic capabilities. Well, it's interesting you say that because what I think of as tennis elbow is not from playing sports. It's an alpaca related injury because I have a farm. So you may see me and then you'll have to tell people it was an alpaca related injury. Um, Do you, um, do you, I know you talked a little bit about ultrasound, but how do you know if, if I need an x-ray or I don't need an x-ray? Like, I think that's the biggest question most of us have is like, should I go get an x-ray or is it just a sprain? For me, the clinical exam dictates whether or not a patient needs um, an x-ray. Also the history. So when you combine the history plus the clinical exam, you typically can get a good idea as to whether or not an athlete or a patient needs an x-ray. In my practice, since I see injuries that have already gone through typically the primary care and the home treatments, most of them will require some degree of imaging. Are you seeing a lot of cheerleading and dance-related injuries, uh, as, as we've seen like a big growing number of reality shows about them? I've seen more than several cheerleaders and dancers in my practice so far. And the, the recent cheerleading injuries, one in particular, a cheerleader was dropped when they were Ooh. doing a stunt, and she had a concussion, and thank goodness it was a routine garden-variety concussion. Um, the other dancer that comes to mind is, um, she had a labral issue with her hip and also had something called snapping hip syndrome or also referred to as coxa saltans. And we did the routine treatments. We sent her to physical therapy. We tried injection therapy and it was so uncomfortable for her, even despite all those conservative treatments that we ended up getting the MRI and sending her to surgery. And I think she was recently um, operated on. And from what I saw in the surgeon's note, she's doing pretty well at this point. That sounds painful. Snapping hip. That sounds painful. She didn't like it. (laughs) Well, I know we're almost out of time. I'm going to ask you the question that every parent is asking. What if my kid's coach doesn't think they need to sit out and I don't agree? What advice do you have for them? My goodness, this is a difficult question. Recently, I saw an athlete who had a very um, robust father who wanted him to participate in football. The mother was uh, uh, a very worried mother, and she thought that he needed surgery on the first day we met. So you got the full spectrum. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it was very difficult navigating it. The, the athlete, who was a 17-year-old quarterback, he was in the middle of it, and he was kind of getting anxious because his parents had so many ideas and opinions on the matter. Now, ultimately, my job is to keep athletes safe. 
So I give the athlete and their parents, if they are minors, the information, the, the best information I have access to. I talk to the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, the coaches, and I let them know, hey, this is something that the athlete should sit out for. They should take some some time, do their routine rehabilitation. There's always going to be the the athlete or the person who doesn't listen, who tries to jump back into the, the game or whatever activity they're participating in. And it may involve a hard lesson. It may involve a waxing and waning course or further, um, further injuring whatever tissue might be injured. So ultimately, at the end of the day, I can arm them with all of the best information I have access to, but it's really their decision. They have the autonomy to make um, the decisions as to whether or not they want to participate in their activity or not. So go in with the education, be willing to take a stand for your kids, but also talk to the doctor and the kid and see how they feel. Exactly. Great advice. Great advice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gomez, and for everybody who's listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.